You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. So we are in our third, third week of of our sermon series here covering the last week. Uh, Today's message is entitled Just One Ending. Uh, it's not a, uh, it's not one of those choose your own ending, I guess. It's not multiple endings. Uh, there's no going back and reversing the snap on this one. Um, so we're going to start off today with a passage out of Luke and we're just going to dig right into the text. Uh, we're coming off of last week where, uh, Rob talked about cleansing the temple and the fig trees. And if you haven't heard that message, you can go find that on our our Facebook page or YouTube or on the podcast and go, go catch that one. It was a good one. But today we're talking about, uh, Tuesday, Tuesday. So we're going to start in Luke 22. We're going to start at the end of the day because that's how my brain works. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which was called the Passover and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, him being Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him to them. And they, and, uh, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. <clears throat> so this is, how, this is how this day ends. This is how, how Tuesday ends. And I, I, got, I got to ask, how did we get to this point, right? This is like a movie where you, you start with the, the climax and then you do a, a record scratch and go back and tell the story of how we got there. Um, how did Judas come to this point where he felt the need to betray Christ? Judas wasn't some sketchy villain guy. You know, in a lot of our minds, if you've been in the church, if you've heard this story or you've seen artwork or depictions, often he's the, he's the, uh, the weaselly character, right? He's the, the Severus Snape looking dude in the background. You're thinking, Jesus, why did you pick the guy that looks like Dr. Evil to be in your disciples? That's, you should have caught that one, Jesus. That's not what Judas was though. He was right there with Christ for the last supper. He was, he was sitting right next to him. <clears throat> He's one of the ones that we know where he was sitting for sure. He was the guy that kept the money for the group. He was the, he was the, the treasurer, right? This was not... It wasn't like he was just a hanging on in the background. No, he was, a, he was a prominent member of the disciples. And we know from his last name, Judas of Iscariot, we know that he was a zealot. That's a zealot name, I guess. People smarter than I say so. <clears throat> and zealots were no less dedicated to their beliefs than say like the Pharisees. So it wasn't like he was some wishy-washy, you know, lukewarm sort of guy. Uh, he wasn't a, he wasn't a doubting Thomas necessarily. Although I think doubting Thomas probably gets a little bit of a bad rap too, but uh, we'll save that for another day. But zealots were no less dedicated to their beliefs than the Pharisees. So what the heck led up to his betrayal? How does, how does Judas 
go from being this disciple that's one of the 12, one of the chosen, living with Jesus for three years, following him around, being the treasurer, how does he go from there to betraying him? So last week we saw Jesus call out the religious leaders abusing their power at the temple, right? He came in and uh, many of us like to imagine him flipping the tables, although we learned it was, there was a lot of tables. So he probably needed some help uh, chewing people out for being a den of robbers. <clears throat> That's a good way to not make the Sadducees happy with you, by the way. Uh, and Tuesday rolls around and we have another eventful day for Jesus and the disciples. There's a ton of passages in Matthew that regard that have to do with this day. He covers a huge chunk of this, right? There's a, a couple of solid chapters. Um, and we are not going to go through all of them because I don't know if my voice would last that long reading all of those, but we are going to do a little bit of a spark note through some of these. <clears throat> Cause I think that maybe some of the things that we see Jesus teaching in that day might give us a little insight into where Judas might be, what, what his headspace might be. So Tuesday rolls around and Jesus goes back to the temple to teach. And he, uh, one of the first stories we get is that his authority to do so is challenged by the religious leaders. We get that in uh, Matthew 21, uh, 23 through 27, if you want to go look that up. Um, but they, they challenge him, what authority do you have? And he's, he uses this, uh, this quick little Jesus juke where he throws out, well, by what authority did John the Baptist have? And he knew that they didn't want to say it was from God, but they also didn't want to not say it was from God because John the Baptist was really popular with everyone and they would have gotten mobbed by the mob. So he, he just kind of sidesteps their little play to usurp him pretty cool. He dodges the villains. Judas is probably thinking, yeah, well done, Jesus. Way to go. Then Jesus tells uh, the parable of the tenants. We talked about this in college group a couple, oh gosh, that was probably like a month or two ago now that I'm thinking of it, but uh, fantastic, fantastic parable. There's a lot of death in it. Uh, that's why Kyle picked it. boy. Uh, there's a lot of murder in there, murder most foul. And Jesus is telling this parable in uh, chapter 21, 33 through 45, or, or 46, I think actually. Uh, and it's directed at the chief priests, right? This, this parable ends with this passage here. Um, when the chief priests and the Pharisees, might you want to throw that up there? And the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus is slamming them with this parable. It is appointed. It is appointed like you are doing things wrong. He's calling them murderers and liars and thieves. Jesus, Jesus is really going at the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests. He's going at them here. Judas is probably feeling pretty good about this. The Pharisees try to entangle him with another question about taxes. And Jesus drops that, that famous render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's response in 22, 15 through 21. Now that render unto Caesar's where they're like, should you pay taxes? Should you not pay taxes? And Jesus is like, here, whose face is on the coin? Well, then it's Caesar's. And everyone's like, that's what a teaching. Well, I'm going to be honest. Judas probably didn't like that one. 
Judas is a zealot, and we'll talk a little bit more about the zealots here in a minute, but he was not, they're, they're kind of the libertarians, I think, in my mind. Uh, they're the gung-ho libertarians. They don't like the taxation. His motto, he's got the, he's got the bumper sticker that says taxation is theft, right? That's, that's Judas, if he's a zealot. All right. Probably wouldn't have loved Jesus's teaching there, but Okay. Then the Sadducees approach Jesus with a question about the resurrection. Now, this is an interesting passage, and we're going to go through this. This is Matthew 22, uh, 23 through 33. The same day the Sadducees came to him, uh, who say that there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in it. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. Uh, this, is, this is common practice for them. It might sound really, really weird for us nowadays, but this is their common practice. They want to keep that family line going. And so if, uh, if somebody got married and then he dies off and hasn't had kids yet, his brother needs to stand in and provide offspring so that the wife and the rest of that line can continue, Right? This is common practice for them. This is just what the law of Moses says for them. Uh, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh, which is terrible luck as a family. My goodness, what a story. We've got seven of these that pass away. After all of them, the the woman died. In the resurrection, wait, Matthew made a point. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're just throwing out a question for whatever reason they think is going to stumble Jesus. That's going to make him unpopular with the people. It's been a couple of times now they've made a point of he's popular with the crowd and they're afraid of the crowd. And they're trying to make him say something that will make him unpopular. They're trying to turn the crowds against him. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them. And this is probably my favorite response of Jesus to the religious leaders. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's just like this gigantic, bam, haymaker coming across and laying them out. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't understand anything. You know nothing. For in the re- and then he, go- he goes on and continues. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but, they're, uh, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Now he's calling out their personal beliefs, which they, you know, were weird with this question in any, anyway, but he's calling this out and he's like, yeah, that's, that's wrong. <clears throat> he says, uh, that was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He's not really losing the crowd here. It's not working out for him. Now, <clears throat> Judas probably felt pretty good about that one. Uh, Jesus continues to teach throughout the day with much of it directed at the religious leaders, which brings us back to Judas betraying Jesus. Like why, what's going on? What's finally puts him over the edge here? 
Because it, it, most of this, other than maybe the Caesar one, most of this probably sits well with him. Je- Jesus is slapping down on the religious leaders. He's calling them out. What is the expectation that, Ju- that Judas has for what the Messiah needs to do? Judas is a zealot. He has this expectation probably of what Messiah is supposed to do. Messiah is supposed to carry out his messianic duties in a certain fashion. If you're a, if you're a zealot, you have this mindset of what this is going to look like. You're going to have this mindset of what being freed from Roman oppression looks like. And it's probably looking a lot like Samson in my mind. That's the first one. That's probably like their favorite go-to guy or Joshua, but more so Samson, I think. This is, the, this is the one where uh, the zealots are, they're constantly planning assassinations. They run around with knives, kind of like Ivan, I, I don't have mine in my pocket, which is terrible. Cause just like, but like you run around and you've got the knife and you're like, there's a Roman, shank him and disappear into the crowd. Like, I, no joke, that's what they did. They hated the Romans. They hated the people that got along with the Romans. They're like, if, if you took a Pharisee who's like all like wrapped up in the law and we, we have to behave properly and really, really pious, really devoted to the law. And then you make, t- then you made him like slightly angry and vicious and brutal. And they thought that by using Rome's tools, if you remember that first week, the one kingdom sermon, are you using Rome's tools or Christ's tools? The zealots are, they, they think that that power through war, through victory, that's what Messiah is going to bring about. <clears throat> Judas, Judas expects Christ to kick the Romans in the teeth. Judas expects Christ to come in and go full Samson on these Sadducees. He's just waiting for him. He's probably getting amped up. He's like, yeah, we cleaned out the temple. Jeez, it's coming. It's coming. Here we go. He's going to start it. He's like polishing his knife. He's ready to go. He still missed the point. He has this expectation of what Jesus is supposed to do. He has this ending in mind of where this is going to, this, where this is going to go. And it doesn't go there. Let's look at Matthew 23, one through five. This is another one of those passages where Jesus is teaching in there. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses's seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. The corrupt leadership is sitting in Moses's seat. And even though it is the corrupt leadership, They are in that position, and so you need to respect them. But, he gives a caveat, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Uh, the phylacteries, I believe, are like a, a prayer thing that they would wear, right? Uh, was it on their wrist? Or, yeah. So it's like, a, it's like a, it holds a, a prayer thing and they would wear it on their wrist. And 
and their tassels, they'd wear, they'd make their fringes long. So you're wearing these big gaudy garments that say, I am pious, but they're putting heavy burdens, heaven, heavy religious burdens. These are like last week when we were talking about all these laws that they had built around things that you had to have, right? They built these things up, but, uh, but they're not actually, they're missing the point, right? Don't, but Jesus says, you're supposed to do and observe whatever they tell you. You're supposed to respect the leadership. Guarantee you, Judas didn't like hearing that one. I guarantee that. Judas is left probably wondering when Jesus is going to drop the hammer. I imagine that's where Judas is on Tuesday night. He's thinking, Jesus, when are you gonna, when, when's the hammer drop? Like when, sure, love, love thy neighbor. Sure, 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 sure. But when are we gonna overthrow Rome? When are we gonna get rid of this leadership? Which brings us back to 22 out of Luke. Let's pick it up in three here. Then Satan entered into Jesus call or into Judas. Oh, that'd be <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> My goodness. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the, tw- who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers, these guys that he hates. He's going to them now on how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. What if Judas is trying to push Jesus into being the Messiah? What if Judas is sitting there thinking, man, Jesus should have, like the, the hammer should have dropped by now, right? It's time, to, it's time to make this happen. He's got this end game. Judas has this end game in sight. He's got this in his sights. He's, he's focused on it. He's saying, here's where we're going. Maybe, maybe Jesus just needs a little push. So if I, if I get him arrested, then he'll go full Messiah. Then comes the hammer, Right? Judas expects the ending of this week to go one by one way, but there will only be one ending. Just like there's, there's only one story that Jesus is telling. There's only one kingdom. There's just one ending that this is going to, and it is not what Judas had in mind. I'm reminded of our, our sermon series on Jonah a while back. <clears throat> a long hot minute ago. But if you go read the book of Jonah, Jonah knows what God is going to do. Jonah knows God wants to save Nineveh. He wants to give them another chance. And Jonah desperately does not want to do that. And so he runs the opposite direction, right? And I, I, in my mind, I kind of picture like God's way and Jonah's way. Uh, God's way and Jonah's way. And somewhere in the middle maybe is where Judas is. He's at this fork in the road, Am I going to go God's way or am I going to go my way, essentially? Am I going to try to end this? Am I going to try to control the narrative and make this play out the way I think it should? What if Judas, by clinging to his agenda, 
by clinging to this, by being blinded to this and not understanding what Jesus is saying. What if that's what left him open for Satan to enter into him? I think that's an intriguing thought. I don't necessarily have an answer to that one. But he's left with this decision. And I don't know whether he even knew because he was so fixated on Jonah knew he knew God's way and he just chose not to. I'm not sure that Judas understood the where, where Jesus wanted this thing to end. But he was so stuck on his agenda. He was so transfixed, so focused on what he thought Messiah should be, would be, needed to be. His plans, Judas's plans and designs. That he ends up betraying his rabbi. Brings us to our implication. Our implication today is let your agenda die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in your heart and in your life. Let your agenda die so that God's ending, so that God's ending can take its fullest place in your heart. So that you can live out God's ending, so that you can be in line with that, so that you can chase after that. And this is perfect for Lent. Lent is a season of giving up something, letting it die, uh, in a sense, in order to focus on the resurrection, right? Uh, I think it was last week, Rob, you pointed out, I, I do fast food for Lent. I give up fast food. It was one of those weeks. Um, and I just kind of, I started doing that a couple years ago. Um, and I didn't realize how good I, it was. I, initially, I just picked like Taco Bell. Then I made it all fast food because that's pretty much the only fast food that I used. Uh, and so over, over the years, it's kind of progressed a little bit there. And when I give up fast food, I'm making a choice to let the convenience of running through a drive-thru, the convenience of just grabbing a quick bite when I haven't planned it out, when I don't have time, in other words. I'm letting that convenience die. It forces me to become intentional about planning out meals. Otherwise I start missing them. Now I'm really good at skipping meals and not remembering it. So that's, that's another issue. But for some reason, as soon as we hit Lent and I can't do fast food, I suddenly become very hungry for every single meal. It's an odd side effect. I feel like God might be sticking it to me for those 40 days, it's rough. Not going to lie. Never been so hungry for breakfast in my life. But nevertheless, it forces me, it forces me to become intentional about planning out those meals, which is good. It refocuses me. It refocuses me on not letting my tendencies to complete, get completely engrossed and completely focused in does that remind us of anything on whatever I'm working on or whatever I'm, you know, focusing on just completely tunnel vision. 
it forces me to have a little bit more control over my schedule, which is good for me. It's something that I need. It creates space because of that. It creates space to allow God to recenter into my life. Let your agenda die so the resurrection can take its fullest place in your heart and in your life. What does that look like for you this Lent? What does that look like for you this year with where you're at in life? What, is, what, is that, what does that mean for you? What do you need to let die? What agenda do you need to set down so that you can pick up God's agenda? So you can pick up and you can start following God's design. Let's talk about some next steps that might help us do that. First one is to read and internalize your Bible with the goal to deeply know God's design. Uh, initially, this just reminds me of that, that interchange with the, uh, with the Sadducees. Jesus called them out for not knowing their scripture. Because they don't know their scripture, they don't understand the power of God. He says, you don't know your scriptures. You don't know God. You don't know who he is. If you want to know God's designs, then you have to know his word. This is his direct line of communication to us along with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is such a fantastic, fantastic way for us to connect with God. And the more I internalize that, and notice I I picked this word carefully because I am terrible at memorization. I'm absolutely garbage at it. Yes, I have like John 3, 16 and maybe two other verses memorized. It's, I'm not good at memorization. Can't remember words. I can remember all of the chords, but I never get the words. Doomed. Everyone can confirm that. <sighs> that was a loud laugh, Jen. <laughs> oh, man. I'm terrible at memorization, but you can internalize So if you're good at memorizing, well, then go ahead and memorize the thing and we'll all be really proud of you. Good job. But if you're like me, just internalize it. I can tell you the overall plot of Genesis. I can tell you what's going on in Leviticus. I can tell you that it's a a story that tells us it's a bunch of rules that tell us how to have a party and how to live out in God's kingdom. I can tell you the basic premise of say like Philippians or Jonah, right? Jonah's good. I I can handle Jonah. I might even have some of that memorized. There's a thing about cows at the end. I got that nailed and much cows nailed it. Maybe by the end of LTG, I'll have some of Isaiah figured out and I'll be able to say what's going on in there. Then again, maybe not stay tuned but you internalize it. It's in there. Once you, once you have it in you, then God can pull that out of you at any time. That is, that is, I probably have a lot of verses memorized that I just don't know I have memorized and God can pull that out whenever he needs it, right? <clears throat> Read and internalize your Bible with the goal to deeply know God's design. It's not just getting it. It's, it's looking for what God's design is in this. Number two, Continue to submit your agenda to God's agenda. This is not a one-time deal. This is not like, all right, and now I'm a Christian and I have God's agenda. No, I have to continually lay down my agenda. 
reminds me of a verse. I can't tell you where it's at because I can't memorize things, but it's, uh, you know, lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow me, right? That Jesus said, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. I have to lay down my agenda to pick up God's agenda. I have to submit that to him. Uh, A lot of times when I'm leading directed prayer, I I don't want to give this away because you'll realize that I do the same thing every time, but I'm going to give it away. Uh, At the end, I usually say something along the lines of, God, would you help us to align these things, our desires that we've just lifted up to you, help align those to your will. Help us to understand where those fit in your will and align those to your will, right? I usually finish with something like that because I think it's important that I don't just keep asking God, God, please overthrow Rome with a big bloody battle. Please overthrow Rome with a big bloody battle. And God's sitting here answering and I'm ignoring it. Part of that is that I need to understand what God's designs are. In order to do that, I need to lay down my agenda and I have to do that every single day. I I have to ask God, is this what I want? Uh, Is this what I want to have happen? Is this what you want to have happen? Am I in line with that? And sometimes figuring this out in community is helpful. This is why we wrestle with things in care groups and LTGs and just meeting with people, right? We get together and we discuss and I, and I, I say, I think this is what God is, God is pushing me to this and my LTG, Kyle and Josh are like, yeah, no, that, that's dumb. What are you doing? That's, that's not, no, that's the heartburn. That's not God. We wrestle with these things together and it helps keep me on track. It helps me discern where God is leading me. It helps figure out what this agenda is because certain people are going to be better at picking up parts of God's agenda than I am. Which takes us to our third next step. Intentionally include people with differing perspectives into your conversations. It's necessary. It's frustrating. It's horrible. It means you're going to have to hang out with people you, that you disagree with. It's the worst, but it's necessary. If I don't have people in my life to give me these different perspectives, then I am going to end up in an echo chamber. I will become so wrapped up in my own agenda that I might completely miss God's designs. I might completely miss God's agenda because I'm so wrapped up in my own. I've got a, I've had, uh, there's been many people through my life that have fit this, this category. Uh, two of them that, that come to mind, uh, my buddy Rob and my buddy Atian. Kyle met Rob the other weekend, so he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, he's a great dude. He's a great dude. We disagree on like 90% of everything. Um, we love each other to death, but we just like, we don't see the world the same way at all. And it's fantastic. It's frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating, but it's necessary. I need that. It keeps me from going off the rails. This happens politically. Like me and Rob do not agree politically on most things. Now we want the same end game. Like we want people to be cared for and we want everybody to have the best for their life, but we have very different methods of getting there. 
but I need his perspective because it keeps me from going off the rails sometimes with my thoughts on things or with how the church should function. We have different views on that. We have different views on all sorts of things. And it's this iron sharpens iron concept, maybe a little bit. That's another verse that I don't have memorized. So iron sharpens iron. He helps refine me and I help refine him. And we, we apply a little pressure to each other's lives. And yes, I'm right more often than not, but <laughs> I really hope he sees that. <laughs> but it's necessary. I need that. I need people with differing perspectives. And it's not just people with polar opposites. Like, don't just go out and find the person that you're like, I hate everything you say. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. Maybe you need that. If you're like me, then you need that. But you just need people with different perspectives. That's why we push community so hard. That's why we push care group. That's why we push LTG. That's why one of our core values is unity in diversity. Because through that, we can easier, we can more easily, I speak good. We can more easily find God's agenda in this world and we can live that out better. Back to that implication, let your agenda die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in your heart and in your life. I think that's the story of Tuesday of the last week of Christ. That's the story. That's, that's the message that I get out of seeing Judas go off the rails and lose it and find himself in a place where he's no longer God's tool, but he is Satan's tool. And the scary part is that I identify with him sometimes. When I start to look at that, I realize that I have a lot more Judas in me than I probably want to admit. I have a lot more of, this is my agenda than I want to admit. That's scary. So are you willing to let your agenda die this season? Or will you try and make God do what you think he should? Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.